first reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 11, which you will find in your church Bibles on page 1156, that's page 1156. The Resurrection of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether, then, it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. The second reading follows immediately on from the previous reading, the resurrection of the dead. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Would you have that passage in front of you? Well, I'm going to um, copy my distinguished colleague who always asks questions. And I'm going to ask a question at the beginning of this sermon on the resurrection proof positive. Why every Sunday in Christian churches do we say the creed, which begins, I believe? Why do we do that? 
Well, the reason is that it states the non-negotiable elements of the Christian faith. So the Apostles' Creed, we've just said, declares that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. No ifs, no buts, no qualifications. So when you hear some learned theologian say something about the resurrection that, well, it doesn't matter if it really happened, the important thing is that the disciples thought it did. Please just say one word in response. Rubbish. Rubbish. It was clearly significant to the Apostle Paul. In our reading, which you've got in front of you, we heard these words, verses 3 and 4. I received, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now there's no room here for anything but a real bodily resurrection. Today, how often uh, we Christians are patronized as being rather naive. You may hear people say things like, well, If this lovely make-believe story helps you, then that's fine. Yet, we do have to do a lot of considering and thinking if we are to reach the same conclusion as Paul and the early church, that Jesus really did rise bodily from the dead. And I want to do this under three headings. Evidence, objections, and implications. Evidence, objections, and implications. First of all, the evidence. Of course, that's the first thing. People don't think there's any evidence. I've got four pieces of evidence. All four Gospels, this is my first one, all four Gospels agree that the tomb was empty. There are some differences in the accounts, as you would expect, from different witnesses. However, they agree on the key facts. Second, The resurrection of Jesus, which is a problem for 21st century minds, is never argued in scripture. It's not a problem. Why would you argue about something that was widely accepted and known at the time? And it was widely accepted because as Paul sets out in verses uh, 5 to 7, there were so many witnesses at different times, including on one occasion to a crowd of over 500 people. Now, very foolishly, one Easter Sunday, it was a family service, and I got up. I'd specially glazed it in advance. I ate a daffodil. Do not eat daffodils. They make you sick. I just ate the petal. And I said to the children, I said, if you go out and said, one of you said, the vicar ate a daffodil, you'd say, nah. 500 people said, the vicar ate a daffodil. Wouldn't you believe it? But the phrase I've always considered a very weighty piece of evidence for the reality of the resurrection is this. Paul talks about the 500 witnesses and adds, almost as an aside in verse 6, most of whom are still living. Why did he write that? Surely it's to register that if anyone had any doubts, they could talk to real live witnesses. Now, that's a very dangerous thing to say unless you're certain of the facts. What Paul is saying is, check it out for yourself. Third piece of evidence included in these appearances one remarkable and rather amusing incident. It's recorded in Luke 24. Two of the disciples, one were actually given a name, Cleopas, 
are walking on the road to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem, when Jesus meets them. Now, I've always thought that this was a really valuable insight because it reveals the state of mind of the followers of Jesus immediately after his crucifixion. In short, they are in despair. You can hear it in their conversation. Jesus asks them what they're talking about. And so we read in Luke 24 from verse 17, They stood still, their faces downcast. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Where have you been? What things, says Jesus, about Jesus of Nazareth? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Now, note the downcast faces. Note the dashed hopes. Note too that they'd totally forgotten the significance of the third day. Jesus had again and again warned his disciples that he would be killed but would rise again after three days. For example, in Matthew 16, we read how when Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life, Peter said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The reason was that the idea of a Messiah who suffered and was killed was beyond their understanding because it was thought that suffering was sent by God as a punishment. Actually, that's quite a modern idea. When bad things happen, people say, why me? Therefore, it simply could not be that Christ could be crucified. But on each occasion, when Jesus taught the necessity of his death and rising again, it simply didn't get into their minds. Which is why he had to do a Bible study with the two men on the Emmaus Road. So in verse 27, Luke 24, we read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus explained to the two men what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, when eventually the penny dropped and they recognized Jesus, what did the two men do? Bear in mind that Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they've been walking, and it was late. They go back seven miles to Jerusalem to tell everybody. It was such mind-blowing news. And the apostles in turn them told them that Peter had seen the risen Jesus. So do you get this picture of despair and, and disaster? Suddenly, there's Jesus. They go back and they said, oh yes, we know, because Peter's seen him. And here in all these appearances is the explanation of how it is that a small group of despairing followers were transformed later to be accused of turning the world upside down. The power came from their belief in the reality of the resurrection. They'd seen it with their own eyes that Christ had conquered death. And here's my final piece of evidence. It's dear Thomas. 
I've always felt history's been unfair to him. Poor Thomas, stuck forever with the nickname of, of Doubting Thomas. It's so unfair. After all, faced with the irrefutable evidence given by Jesus' appearance, he had the humility to change his mind. He changed his mind, believing Thomas. And when the disciples excitedly told him that Jesus had risen, he refused to believe it. Well, you can sort of sympathize, can't you? It's just mind-blowing. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And in my reflection on Thomas this last Good Friday, I quoted from the NIV Study Bible, which comments, hard-headed skepticism can scarcely go further than this. But to give Thomas his due, when a week later Jesus comes to him and says, reach out your hand and put it into my side, he gives in completely. My Lord, my God. He acknowledges Jesus' identity and his divinity and makes a very personal response. And that's what the resurrection invites. Again, on Good Friday, I quoted the author who wrote this, the insistence of Thomas on tangible proof of resurrection lays to rest the argument that the disciples were credulous and deluded. Former Lord Chief Justice Lord Darling said this, in its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. We are not idiots to believe in the fact of the resurrection. Secondly, objections to the resurrection, the ones that are often raised. And I, again, I've got four of them that are often mentioned over the years, people have proposed various theories to dismiss the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the first one, the empty tomb theory. Some would say that the body was stolen by the authorities. If they'd done that, the commotion that followed the news that Jesus had risen would have been stopped in its tracks by them producing the body. That's all they had to do. Second theory, the disciples stole the body. Matthew records the religious leaders bribing the soldiers guarding the tomb to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. But we need to remember that many of the very first Christians became martyrs. Would they have died for something they knew to be a lie? Thirdly, another objection, the swoon theory, still proposed as an explanation by people of some other faiths today. The argument is put that Jesus didn't really die. In the cool of the tomb, he recovered sufficiently to roll the stone away and escape. Bear in mind, crucifixion involves nails in your hand and in your feet. And you have been hanging there for some hours. This overlooks also he was bound in grave cloths for burial, together with 75 pounds of spices which the study Bible states was a very large amount, such as was used in royal barrels, and that the stone used to seal the tomb was incredibly heavy. Now, do you think a man who had faced crucifixion could move the stone? 
There is another detail that fatally undermines this objection. John records that when Jesus was on the cross and a spear pierced his side, it brought a sudden flow of blood and water. And that's an indication of death where clot and serum separate. The study Bible footnote goes into more detail, saying that the blood and water was the result of the spear piercing the pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, and the heart itself. No, Jesus was really, really dead. And the fourth objection is that all the witnesses, including the 500, were suffering from a mass hallucination. Pretty desperate argument, I think. Consider these factors, though. Hallucinations, by their very nature, are personal and unique. And they're produced often as a result of some longed-for event. But as our evidence reveals, and the conversation of the two on the road to Emmaus demonstrated, Jesus' resurrection was not expected, despite all that he had told them. So the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, I would therefore argue, is overwhelming. So what are the implications, my third point? Uh, The implications are all centered on Jesus, what we know about him and how that affects all of us who are those who believe and trust in him. The first thing is that the resurrection undeniably points to the identity of Jesus. We know he performed miraculous numbers of miracles over nature, stilling a storm over disease, healing people over death, bringing a number back to life. Jairus' daughter, who is there in our east end on the right-hand side. It's a lovely little picture. He brought a number to her life, including his friend Lazarus, and it was just before he raised Lazarus that he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. But it was the fact that he himself rose from the dead that pointed most clearly to his divinity, showing us, as we read in Acts 2, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And Jesus revealed his true identity when he stood before the ruling religious council, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas the high priest, said, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, and from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now those words were first used by Daniel to describe the Messiah. And so Jesus was claiming to be that person that Daniel spoke about, claiming to have the majesty and the authority belonging only to God. And that was recognized by Caiaphas as a claim to divinity because he accused him of blasphemy. And, of course, the resurrection proved his claim to be true. The second implication is that the resurrection vindicated the work of Jesus on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross. Lots of people were crucified. Caiaphas, the high priest, in discussion at the Sanhedrin, said this, It is better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. 
Spotify will comment very interestingly. His words were true in a way he could not imagine. In reality, Caiaphas's words meant that Jesus' death would be for the nation, not by way of removing political trouble. You'll remember that Jerusalem was sacked, in fact, in AD 70. But by taking away the sins of those who believed in him. Jesus came to die on the cross to take our sin on himself and so pay the penalty for sin, the fixed penalty, which is death. A life for a life. And anyone who believes and trusts in this living, risen Christ will have their sins forgiven and receive in exchange a new life, eternal life, which extends beyond this physical life. So death for the Christian is not a full stop. It's a comma, taking us into the very presence of Jesus. Jesus once said that he gave his life as a ransom. Now that's a word we use still of people being held in ransom. He gave his life as a ransom to release us from the imprisonment of sin and death. And when God raised him the dead, God was proclaiming that the ransom price had been paid and that all had been accomplished. The resurrection vindicated the work of Christ on the cross. That in this death, uniquely, this crucifixion, uniquely, there was this cosmic exchange. Our sins for Jesus' innocence. Jesus' innocence for our sins. The only one who could pay that price. So what does it mean for you and me? Well, since Jesus rose from the dead, we Christians have very good reason to believe that we too will rise from the dead. That this life is not all there is. There's more. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 wrote, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. What if the resurrection didn't happen at all? Let's face that. Let's ask that question. And that's why our reading from Paul to the Corinthians is so relevant. Verse 17, it sets out the awful prospect if that was the case. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are wasting your time this morning. You are still in your sins. Nothing has happened. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's to say Christians who have died, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied because we're believing a fairy story. Devastating, isn't it? If it were true. But it's not. Thankfully, Paul continues, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Praise the Lord. Alleluia. Here's the second thing for us. Since Jesus from the dead, rose from the dead, we need not fear death. I'd like you to try a little experiment. When you go to the next happy party, say to people, I'd love to talk about death. It's a bit of a conversation stopper. 
even in the 21st century. So we say so-and-so on past. No, no, they died. We love to avoid talking about it because we fear it. We're anxious about it. It can be a slavery, holding people in its grip, which is why the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2, it's a really valuable verse, look it up. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 wrote this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. However modern we are, there are people who are enslaved by their fear of death. And of course, if you don't fear death because of your belief and trust in the risen Lord Jesus, you need not fear about the future. It's certain. Now, I have to say, I'm not entirely sure about my future. I know some things. I don't know quite how it's all going to be. But the most important thing, I do know. We have what Peter calls in his first letter, a living hope. A certainty that heaven awaits us and a glory that scarcely can be imagined. Not because we're better than other people. Not at all. We're the same. But because we believe and trust in what Jesus has done for us. And have received that for ourselves. And here's the third implication for us since Jesus rose from the dead. We who are united with him and can enjoy, enjoy his resurrect, can enjoy that resurrection power in our daily lives. And God intended us to. So Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, put it like this. We read in chapter 1, That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. No wonder, Paul wrote later in the same letter, these words which we know quite well, they're very inspiring. Because they're based on the resurrection, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, what is that power? It's the resurrection. To him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Hallelujah. So in conclusion, we know what Peter believed, that he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. We know that Paul did. He believed in the resurrection of Jesus. We know that Thomas did. In addition to all the other witnesses, in addition to the witnesses of the church throughout the generations. But the question comes back to each of us as it did to Thomas. Are you able to echo with him his words, said as a result of his conviction, his complete conviction of Jesus' resurrection? My Lord and my God. I'm able to say so because I believe it utterly. Let us pray. A moment of quiet.
God does speak to us personally by his word through his spirit. Maybe that something, a piece of the jigsaw, has just slotted into place. Maybe you've never responded as Thomas had the honesty to respond. Take this moment to do so because it changes everything.